And as you are, let me ask you please to turn to 1 John in chapter 3. Uh, John's first epistle, 1 John chapter 3, please. I want to read uh, beginning with verse 19 through the end of the chapter. 1 John chapter 3, 19 through 24. And as we are looking upon this passage, uh, at least I see my need and I trust you see your need for God's help. So let's pray together. Uh, Father, I pray that you would help us now uh, see that which is true. That even as I prayed as we began uh, this morning, that you would give us the eye of faith to see you. You'd give us, God, the ear of faith to hear you. Uh, that you would give us uh, the heart, hand of faith to receive you. Please satisfy the deepest longings of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. First John chapter 3, verse 19, this is the word of the Lord. By this we shall know that, we're the, that, that we are of the truth and reassure, reassure our heart before him. For whoever, I'm sorry, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. And then together we say, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Now, I'm going to jump right in today. John applies the theme that he has been teaching. He applies the theme that he's been teaching, which is assurance of our salvation. He applies the theme of the assurance of our salvation to answered prayer. He's saying, Here's one of the benefits of having this assurance, of having this confidence before God. Notice how he puts it. It just takes my breath away. Verse 2, I mean, verse 21, he says, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, that is to say, we have assurance, we have confidence before God. If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. So of all the great benefits that we get from having assurance, he's saying this assurance is confidence before God, confidence when we pray, and the confidence that it gives us when we pray, look what he says. We have, and whatever we ask, we receive from him. Ah, I don't know about you, but that takes my breath away to think about that. Now his theme is assurance. I hope by now that if, you know, you woke up in the middle of the night and first John popped into your head, you could say, I know the theme of first John. I know it's assurance. I know from chapter five that John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. I hope that you know that that's his theme. That's what he's trying to convince this church and us as well, that we can we can know that we know him, as he puts it in chapter 2. Even as he puts it here in verse 19, by this we shall know that we are of the truth. So, so that's his theme, 
Now, I hope also that you can flesh this out a bit. So if someone says, okay, his theme, his theme is assurance. How can we be sure that we know the Lord? How can we be sure that we have eternal life? I hope three things come to your mind. Uh, the first thing I hope comes to your mind is that we must believe in, have faith in Jesus, the Jesus about whom the apostles taught, this Jesus they had seen, this Jesus they had heard, this Jesus they had, they had touched, they had beheld him, they knew him. That's the first one. The second then is, is, is in your life. How, how does that faith work itself out? It should work itself out in obedience, that you, now you're inclined to follow him. You're inclined to obey him. And as we obey him, it gives us evidence. It gives us testimony, really, in our own hearts. Yes, he's done something in me. I really do believe. Look at this. I, I want to follow him. I want to obey him. And then thirdly, he says, uh, we should be people who love each other. Yes, we're to, to love in general, to love all people, or even to love our enemies. But he says, most particularly, you remember what Jesus said, give you a new commandment to the love one another as I have loved you. By this, all people, even yourself, will know that you're my disciple. So you should know the theme of 1 John assurance. You should know how it is that we can be assured believing in the true Jesus, Son of God, God in the flesh, God with us. You see yourself inclined to obey him and and, and to love other believers, not just in word, as he puts it, but in deed or in deeds and things that we do, that when you see other believers who have needs, that you're compelled really out of love, maybe not out of like, but out of love, to help them, you see. So as we grow in faith, as we grow in obedience, as we grow in love for each other, our assurance that we really do belong to him will increase as well. And then he says, whatever you ask of him, will receive. Now notice, there's a wrinkle in this. Because he says, by this, now when John uses the expression by this, he uses it a number of times and just by way of just how John writes. Um, what he's doing very often is he's, kind of grabbing what he's already said and then pulling what he's already said through into the next point. And that's what he does this. So by this, that is by having assurance in Jesus. And he's just talked about loving each other. And now he's going to pull that through this passage and he's going to, going to circle around all three of these uh, tests for assurance. By this, notice, love each other, as he says in the previous verses. But then notice, he says, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of, this, uh, of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. In other words, he, he's now pulled all of these together, that we are to obey him, that is, that we're to um, do what pleases him. And we believe in him, in the name of his son, Jesus, and we love each other. So he's saying, so, so here's our assurance. By this, we can assure our hearts because it's important to ensure our hearts so that we can actually come into the presence of God to pray. What gives you assurance when you enter into the presence of God to pray that he'll hear you? 
the days in which we live, when anything bad happens, every public official and other people say, our thoughts and prayers are with you. I always think this. What makes you think God will hear you? Or when someone says to me, I'll pray for you, I think, what makes you think God will hear you? What assurance do you have when you go into his presence? Now, some people think that God will just simply hear them because they're a human being, and, and, and that's not exactly what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that we're to come in the name of Jesus. He'll hear us because of Jesus. He'll hear us because of the fact that we've been forgiven our sins. He'll hear us because we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so when we enter into the presence of God, we enter through our Lord Jesus. That's what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. And so our confidence, of course, is that we come in the name of Jesus. But what gives you certainty? Well, he says what we're to assure our hearts by this. See, our hearts should be assured by the fact that I do believe in Jesus. I see God at work in my life through obedience and my love for each other. And so now I can confidently come into the presence of God. If you've got a situation like this, you have a situation where you start thinking about someone you haven't contacted in a long time. Used to be tight, used to be good friends, used to uh, talk all the time uh, and, and be with each other, but it's been a year or two or ten. And you think, I should call them, but then you go, but I don't know. I don't feel as confident as I used to feel in contacting them, you know. Why is that? Because, well, because you haven't been faithful. You haven't kept up the relationship. So you wonder, will they really answer the phone? Will they really return my text or my email or whatever it is? Will they go, who's this guy? I've had students, and this has been my experience too as a student. Sometimes I say, well, I want to go see my professor, but I don't have much confidence because I haven't gone to class. So I don't have a lot of confidence that my professor is actually going to receive me when I, when I go. And, and so it, it's similar with, with God, isn't it? I mean, what confidence do we have? Uh, well, we have to have this assurance, you see. Well, certainly, we come in the name of Jesus, sins forgiven, yes. But what's this relationship like with him? That's what John is getting at here. You see, this assurance that we have, as it grows, it means we're growing spiritually. We're growing, we're maturing as believers in Jesus. Our faith is growing. Our confidence is growing as we obey, we know him better. And as we love each other, increasingly we're beginning to understand and we're growing in our understanding of what it really means to live out this life. And we're growing more in the, our understanding of what really pleases him. And as that grows, you see, then we'll have confidence before him. But the wrinkle that John throws is this. He says, whenever our hearts condemn us, now notice, John doesn't say, if ever. He says, whenever. Because we do know that our hearts sometimes accuse us and say, why should you have confidence before God? Why should you think that God will hear your prayers? Look at your faith. Look at your life. Do you really think he's going to hear the likes of you? James Boyce, a pastor, now deceased, but a pastor in Philadelphia, 10th Press, there some years ago, uh, put it like this. He says, this self-condemnation can be due to a number of factors. 
It can be a matter of disposition. Some people are just more introspective and melancholy than others. In other words, it may just be part of it might be temperament that it's just difficult for you to believe that anybody has accepted you. You can always just see the bad things and never the positive things, never see how God is at work in your life, just see the, the negative things. Some of us are more prone to that than others. He says, it may be a question of health. How a person feels inevitably affects how he thinks. It may be due to specific sin or what the old Puritans called a besetting sin. And you look at that sin in your life, and every time it happens, and every time still you confess and repent, still you, you think, how can God accept the likes of me? It may be due to circumstances. It could be because of a particular incident of illness, or it could be tragedy that's happened in your life and you begin to wonder. He says, but whatever the cause, the problem is a real one and quite widespread. How is a believer to deal with such doubt? Well, John apparently recognized this problem as a real one in his time and therefore wisely interrupts his argument at this point to deal with it. How does a Christian deal with doubt? Although there are many causes for it, there's only one answer. He says, it's by knowledge. The Christian must simply take himself in hand and confront himself with what he knows to be true concerning God and God's work in his life. In other words, faith, being based on knowledge, must be fed by it. And so John says, okay, I want you to think. I want you to think. When our hearts condemn us, he says, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Now, that could be scary on the one hand. I mean, if my heart's condemning me, what's God think of me? If my heart gets it, if my heart sees what I'm doing and, and, and realizing that I'm not walking with the Lord as I ought or my faith is shallow and weak, then, then the Lord knows that too, doesn't he? I mean, he, know, he knows everything. But then there's this expression, but he's greater than our hearts. That is to say, he can overrule our hearts. And why would he, why would he do that? Because he knows what he's doing. And he knows what he's done in Jesus for us. He can see what we can't see. Now, it might well be true. And when we bow before the Lord, our heart does condemn us and we begin to think of real sins. I mean, we can falsely accuse ourselves. I mean, sometimes we think something's a sin and it actually isn't. It may have been, we may have been brought up with it, you know. It might just be one of those things that you think, well, that's a sin, but it really isn't. Or maybe just the evil one throwing darts at you, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6. It may just be your own, again, melancholy, your own introspection, your own temperament. But it might be real. Maybe this real sin in your life. I, I worry about us during this COVID time. I, I've just seen certain ones sort of fall away, drop away, not gathering together either in person or even live stream, and not keeping up spiritual disciplines as they once did, not being in any kind of fellowship. And I, I wonder, wonder what that's doing, wonder how they pray. So it may be that if that's true of us, we have to kick back and we have to think, I need to repent and confess of my sins because I realize that when I come to God, I don't have the confidence I once did. I don't have the assurance I once did. So we have to really, truly repent. But, but, 
The good news is that God is greater than our hearts. He knows all things. He knows the work of Christ. He knows our lives. And, and as we come to him, one word from him, forgiven, overrules any condemnation in our hearts. Because he's greater, you see, than our hearts. And we trust. And we trust in, in him. But also, this is a real thing. John wants to say, now listen, take confidence before God. When your heart condemns you, think about what God has done in your life. Remember how you came to faith. Some of, some of us have, have really dramatic stories of coming to faith. Some of us are not dramatic at all. But you believe, don't you? What are you worried about now? Well, you're worried about whether or not he'll receive you. Why? Because, because you know him. You know something of him. Your, your faith, you see, is is there, think about it. Do you believe in this Jesus, the one who came, God in the flesh, the one who gave himself for us? Do you trust him? Say, yes, I do. For sins forgiven, yes. For righteousness given, yes. I trust him. See your hope, yes. And look at your life. Uh, what changes do you see in your life? What's true about you because you believe in Jesus are you inclined to obey him? And when you disobey, you're inclined to confess and repent. That is to say, desire to turn from it and ask for his help to turn from it. Is that, is that really true of you? Do you see, how is it that you've loved others? And if you haven't, or if you're not, John says, get about it. Not to earn anything, but, but to but to show forth that God really is at work in your life, to give you confidence that you really do belong to him. He says, because if that's true, then you'll have confidence when you come before him, when you come before him in prayer. That's why we confess our sins every Sunday pretty early in the worship service. We spend a little bit of time thinking about God, who he is and his holiness, but, but quickly... In any good liturgy, quickly, there's confession of sin. Why? Because we see it, and we want to clear the way. We want to clear the air so we can get on with real worship so that we can be confident in his presence that he's going to receive our praise, that he's going to speak to us by his word, that he's going to hear our prayers. You see, that's why we confess early on and not, not wait till later. I know that sometimes in my last prayer afterwards, I confess too because I've just read the scripture and confess a bit more to help us get on our way. But that's the liturgy of our lives, isn't it? We get up in the morning, we think about God, we think about ourselves, we confess our sins so that we can have confidence before him as we pray. And then you say, well, what does, what does this assurance have to do with answered prayers? I mean, this expression... Is, a, is, is one of those dramatic expressions that we have whatever we ask, we receive from him. I mean, this is, this is just right out of the playbook of Jesus. I mean, John often in his other writings of these epistles and even in Revelation, we, we find very close relationship with Jesus. For instance, in, in Matthew chapter 7, uh, Jesus alarms us with these words about prayer. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds and the one who knocks, it will be open. And then he gives this great uh, assurance 
Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? I mean, Jesus is just right up front. Ask, seek, knock. He's that very confidence of his loving and heavenly Father will we'll give to you. On the night that Jesus was betrayed and he was trying to instill confidence, if you will, courage in his disciples, said this to them in John chapter 15 and verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. He says, listen, my Father has a deep desire that you bear fruit. So ask him for fruit. Ask him. Just ask him. It's how he's glorified, you see, in all of that. Verse 16 of this same chapter, so just minutes after Jesus said this, he said, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he'll he'll give it to you. And then then just, again, some minutes later in the same evening, Jesus says to them in chapter 16, middle of verse 23, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he'll give it to you. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you'll receive that your joy may be full. So what do we get from that other than ask and expect, right? So John says that our asking and our expecting is based on having confidence before him. And that confidence before him is related to our spiritual maturity, so I hope if I connect spiritual maturity and answered prayer, it's not a surprise to you that, that you'd expect such a thing. Now, it isn't this. It isn't that God's on a, some kind of point system. In other words, well, for 20 righteous points of obedience and love and faith, you get a job. For 25, you get a spouse. For 30, you get a healing. Well, it only takes 15 if it's strep and a little kid who responds well to antibiotics. But, but if it's COVID, well, it might take more, okay? So, so it isn't that. It's not that we're adding up points and once you kind of get over the scale, then he says, okay, you can have that. It isn't that at all. It's just simply that these things go together. It's just simply that, that all of this is, is simply true. It's, it's intertwined. It's intertwined because you see, as we go grow spiritually in faith and obedience and love, our confidence grows, but also the content of our prayers mature as well. And then our contentment with how God answers grows as well. We become increasingly satisfied with what he does in response to what we ask because we know him. We come to know him as our faith grows, right? As our obedience grows and as our love for each other grows, you see. And this, to me, at least, is incredibly encouraging because who had the best prayer life ever? There you go. I can even see it under your masks. Jesus. That's right. Jesus had the best prayer life ever. Remember, when he was at the tomb of Lazarus, he said, 
to his father, I thank you that you always hear me. I mean, Jesus' prayer life was so good that when the disciples of Jesus uh, saw him pray, they asked him to teach them to pray. Now, I would have asked Jesus, how do you feed thousands of people with just a boy's lunch? Or how do you walk on water? Something cool like that. But, But they asked Jesus because his prayer life was of such great, profound significance that that they asked him, teach us, teach us to pray. And, And you know, Jesus knew his father, never doubted. Jesus said, I I only say what I've heard him say, I only do what he's taught me to say. I only do what he's taught me to do. And so Jesus was completely, obviously, in the will of his father. So he knew how to pray. And his prayers were always heard. His prayers were always heard. Now, do you know what's true of every believer? We're being conformed to the image of Christ. Romans chapter 8 says that's the end of this string of what begins before the foundations of the world. Verse 29, Romans 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So, if you can put this together with me. So as we're maturing, we realize this is the purpose of God for us, that our faith is growing, that we're growing in obedience, we're growing in love, we're knowing him more, being more conformed to the image of Jesus. As we're more conformed to the image of Jesus, all kinds of things happen, including he hears our prayers and we receive what we ask. So if you're like me, you're thinking this, that's great. Then if I just mature enough, I'll get what I want. (laughs) And that's true. Now, your wants might be a little different than they were before. As we're maturing, our wants change. Our wants are, God, I want what you want. And the prayer, your will be done, not mine, isn't a cop-out, but it's a reality. And it's, it's not only a reality, but it's one of these things that we pray, your will be done and not mine. And so we seek the will of God. What really does please you? That's how John puts it here, doesn't he? He says, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. That's what we really want to know, what really pleases you. And what he says is, what really pleases me is for you to believe, to really trust in my son. What really pleases me is you to follow him, to obey him. What really pleases me is that you love each other. That's what really pleases me. And and do you see how that will transform our prayers? We begin to pray about our faith. God, enable me to trust you more. And he goes, I'd love to do that. God, enable me to obey you. I'd love to do that. God, enable me to love these other believers and not go my own way, but to give myself in love for them. He said, oh, follow me. These these prayers in Scripture, it's just a couple. Philippians in chapter 1.
in verse 9. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What's Paul praying for? He's praying that their love may abound. As their love abounds, that they would know God and each other better, to know God's will, be able to approve what is really excellent, pure and blameless. Just one more Colossians chapter one, flip over a couple of pages. Verse nine, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord that is to obey him, to please him, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work that is in obedience and loving each other and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Why do we need to be strengthened? So that we can obey, so that we can love, you see? Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance the saints in life. So how then do we really grow like this? Sometime back, I can't even remember the book. I just made a note of it. I didn't have time to kind of scan my library for books on prayer. But uh, some time ago, I was reading a book on prayer, and I turned to the appendix. And normally in books on prayer, the appendix is, is some kind of a a prayer schedule, some kind of a prayer guide. Let me walk you through day by day on how you ought to pray. And I was shocked with this particular book because the appendix wasn't a prayer guide. It was a reading guide. It was a reading guide through the scripture. And the author says, if you're going to pray, you need to know the heart of God. You need to listen to him and know what pleases him. And the only way you know what pleases him is to read this book and do it. And as you read this book and do it, see, hearing from God isn't some mystical experience. It's some reading and studying experience by the Holy Spirit. And it's, it's growing, you see, in the knowledge of his word. And if we do that, we grow in his grace and his strength. And we know what pleases him. And so one of the ways that we, we grow in this way is that we read the scripture. And we put it to practice when it says obey, we obey. When it says love, we love. And it becomes the whole focus of our lives. And then, of course, we know that we grow in spiritual maturity in our faith and our obedience and love as God takes us through difficulties in life. Some time ago, again, I, I ran across this poem. I don't do poems much, but I ran across this poem. It was helpful. It's anonymous. The citation said it was found in the Bible of a missionary in China. It's called The Sculptor. I'll just read a stanza or two. It says, a block of marble stood before the sculptor where he would. He smote with hand well skilled and thus with blow on blow fulfilled the vision of his mind. At first with chisel, coarse and stroke, unspared, the corners off he broke and Soon the form appeared, and then with finer tools he wrought, and finer yet until he brought forth the perfect image. 
So with unerring skillfulness, with cunning hand ensure, tis as the marble groweth less, the likeness groweth more. So God divinely works with those he in eternal ages chose to show his work of grace and thus with blow on blow to trace the image of his son. That's what he's doing, isn't it? He's producing the image of his son. As he produces the image of his son, what does that mean? It means that increasingly we do what pleases him. It means increasingly then that we obey him. It means increasingly then that we love each other. And it means increasingly we know how to pray. It means increasingly we find that we receive what we ask. Why? Because we're not praying to spend it on ourselves. We're praying to bring him glory, to bear fruit, the very fruit of love. Take a look. God is greater than our hearts. The night that he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread. After giving thanks, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples, and he said, this is my body which is given for you. In the same way, he took the cup, and again, after giving thanks, this too he gave to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant, and my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. The apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. What are we declaring? We're declaring, yes, Christ has come. We're declaring that he died for the sins of sinners. And then we think, a great expression. I wrote about it this week. Some of you read those little email letters, but it just startled me. Unto you is born this day. That's that's what the angel said to the shepherds. I would have thought the angel would have said, unto Mary, unto Joseph even, unto God. He said, no, no, no. For you, unto you is born. So the question is, do we know that? That is, did you know that he died for you? When you you come to this table, you're declaring he died for you. For me, he came for me, he died for me that I might live. And so when our hearts condemn us, run to the cross, yes. Say, look, and have that word of pardon be greater than your own heart that might condemn you. But of course, then. Think, how then do I live this out? Oh, yes. Growing faith, growing obedience, growing love for other believers. When we come to this table, we declare the Lord's death. We say, look what he's done. He's forgiven my sins. He has given me new life. I can see it. I can see it. Let's pray. Father, pray for all of us that we can see the work of Christ 
in ourselves individually and in our church collectively. That we can, we can, we can see that we believe in Jesus. The Son of God. The Savior of sinners. Propitiation for our sins. Our advocate. And we can see that he's worked in us individually, collectively, that we seek to obey him. We can see obedience in our own lives. And we realize this is the work of, of Christ in us by his word and spirit. And, and, and we love each other. Forgive each other. We're patient with each other. We're kind to each other. We're compassionate. We're humble in our relationships with each other. We're self-controlled so as not to hurt one another. We're filled with joy because of the other. And we give so that others may be blessed. Enable us to see the work of Christ, God, that we might have confidence before you. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.